Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. This week's episode is a live panel from the AgTech Meetup in Sydney. The topic of the panel is collaboration between researchers and startups in AgTech. You'll hear from three guests, Dr. Peter Thorburn, Chief Research Scientist and Research Group Leader in CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Group, Tegan Nock, Co-Founder and Director of Soil Sequest, and Nick Hazel, Founder and CEO of V2 Foods. Given it was a live event, the audio quality is not perfect. Sorry about that, but we didn't want you to miss out. Before we jump in, a brief backstory on this panel. So a few months ago, Peter and I got to talking about researchers working with startups and some of the big cultural differences and challenges. He said he had learned some lessons the hard way, but he was willing to share them. I told him that he didn't have to go it alone, and so we pulled together this panel with Tegan and Nick. We start off the panel with a bit of fun. I asked everyone to share a secret talent, then their normal intro. You'll hear from Peter first, then Tegan, and then Nick. My secret talent is, I'm told, a very good sensory memory. And where that comes in handy is I'm really into wine and I <laughs> love it and I can do things like go, oh, that reminds me of when we had, you know, a bottle of Clarenbale Shiraz, probably from Maxwell in 1992, and we're under the gum tree and, you know, our kids are running around or something, something like that. I guess some, a, a practical secret talent too, I'd have to say um, cake decorating would oh. be mine, which comes in handy when you're about to talk to a researcher about a timeline as a startup. I think that's, that's probably <laughs> the practical application of that one. My secret talent's probably singing, and it's the reason why I have to rush out at 7 o'clock tonight because we're singing Fouré's Requiem in the Opera House, so I sing in the Sydney Philharmonic Choir. But this year, funnily enough, I don't seem to be singing very much. The reason Nick hasn't been singing as much is that he's just formed a startup called V2 Foods. They only incorporated in January, but they've made some insane progress since then. Basically a collaboration with CSIRO, Investors uh, Main Sequence, which is a venture capital fund associated with CSIRO, and Competitive Foods, and a guy called Jack Cowan, who owns Competitive Foods and Hungry Jacks. And our mission is, is to figure out what we can do in this plant-based meat space and do something really as big as we can to make a difference to sustainability on the planet. So that's kind of our, our big global mission. And uh, we've been working at an insane speed with CSIRO and pulling out research and, and technology as quickly as we possibly can. And we launched in Hungry Jacks with their Rebel Whopper about... 10 days ago, 12 days ago, something like that. And um, we're just accelerating from there. So it's been a bit of a wild ride. My background is R&D multinationals. I was R&D director for Master Foods, R&D director for PepsiCo. And I've been teaching innovation, which is actually where I met you, I think. I was teaching innovation at UTS BCII. I guess my personal background to start with. So I originally come from a property between Parks and Condobolin. I am what one of my friends likes to call a drought baby. So kids who grew up in that millennium drought and 
only knew red dirt for a very long time. We're very surprised when we actually saw what a, what a crop really looked like. So I guess from that context, I um, went to university and studied ag science. Had farmed for about seven years back at home and then came back into industry. A little bit about the soil sequest story, which, which links into my story. Um, throughout the time when I was farming, our agronomist had been working with endophytes. That's something that he had a real passion for and a speciality in. Endophytes are microbes that live symbiotically within a plant. So we'd played around with endophytes on the farm for a long time. There was some research happening at Sydney Uni that our agronomist was really keen on, had been watching, and it didn't get funded for a second round. So as growers who'd been watching that research, a group of us went, you know what, this research is something really, really important and and really means something to us. It was led by um, a couple of guys from out west, so Mick Wettenall at Trangy and Guy Webb, our agronomist from Forbes, and they picked it up and ran with it and started a not-for-profit and said, this is something we care about, we're going to try and fund it ourselves. Through that process, got pulled into this kind of whirlwind of, of research and looking at different ways of, of trying to be able to fund research. I guess to cut a long story short, it's been quite a few years of pushing and realised that to really have that financial sustainability and to be able to push that research in, in a way that will really deliver products for growers and something that's actually practical. We've stood up a commercialisation arm next to our not-for-profit to take on investment that can then allow us to have an R&D pipeline going through. So we have just gone through our, our seed series in terms of investment and we're kind of right at the start of our um, journey, sitting at a, at a, on top of a cliff, you know, watch this space for us. Tegan and the Soil Sequest team will be able to share more soon about their capital raise. But for now, Tegan was able to say that they've raised about $8.5 million. So stay tuned for more from them. Peter rounds out our intros. I start with, you know, being a kid who grew up in the city who was interested in country. So I went off and studied agriculture. In doing that, I found out I really love the way soils and plants interact and how that happens. And particularly, how do you represent that mathematically? So I'm uh, wound up being a cropping systems modeler, which means I collect data to develop algorithms, I collect data to test algorithms, I take those algorithms and use them to do stuff. Always been interested in science and research, but I really like the impact side of research. But unlike a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, it's either impact or science. You know, you're either publishing in nature or you're delivering products to farmers. I actually don't believe in that dichotomy. I think they go together. If you're well grounded in what you do in the field, you're looking at impact, you do better research. On the other hand, if I'm trying to influence government policy, which is one of the things I'm really interested in doing, if I can whack down a bunch of international journal papers on the table, they'll never read them, but I've got instant cred in the room with that. And I suspect it's the same when you're dealing with people who don't know the technology side as much as you. If you're good at your research, you get the credit, it it shines through which then helps you get impact. And so to me, it's this sort of big roundabout that goes on. So I've worked my way up through the ranks in CSRO. I lead a group of about 45 multidisciplinary researchers and have some cross-organisational responsibilities in that area as well. I love Peter's view on research, that impact for industry and good science actually go hand in hand. I asked Peter to give us an overview of his collaboration with the ag tech startup Goterra and share what he's learned. It was at an event like this in May last year. Olympia Yeager was the sole person, not part of a panel. And she's starting up, at that stage was in the process of just um, raise some capital to expand her insect 
farming company and she got up there and said, hello, I'm Olympia, I'm a maggot farmer. <laughs> and like, I was like, okay, this is worth listening to. And then I think she said the phrase, I call bullshit on that about four times during her talk about the whole posturing around startup raising capital and you know, having to prove yourself. And so in the course of the evening, she talked about some problems she had farming her maggots. And uh, as I said, I lead a multidisciplinary group. I have a team of entomologists who actually know a fair bit about raising insects. So afterwards, I went up to said, hi, I'm Peter, I'm from CSRO. I think you need some maggot husbandry. And she said, yeah, I sure do. And so we agreed to, the conversation lasted for about two minutes. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll get in touch. And uh, we did. CSRO has a number of programs to catalyse working with small SMEs where they start up. So not one of them is Kickstart, which is a, a co-funding. So we quickly said, oh, let's negotiate the Kickstart. And it was through that that we started getting to know each other and some of the, the pros and cons of the different organisations. But despite the alignment between Olympia and Peter's group, things didn't go exactly as Peter had planned. After our first talk with her about the problems they're having in the business and the production of black soldier flies, he said, okay, we think we understand your problems. How about we go, and we'd agreed at this stage, let's, let's have a crack at it. Let's kickstart with sort of 50-50 funding. So um, the SME puts in a dollar, CSRO matches it. And we went away and wrote um, a draft application you know, sort of thought about the scale of the work that would be needed and stuff like that. And we sent it back to Olympia and after a while we weren't getting a lot of response. And one thing we learnt is she's incredibly busy. And so we learnt to understand that no news wasn't necessarily bad news. And then it came back saying, I actually am interested in something about 40% of that size and this, that and the other thing. And we were crushed. We didn't know what was going on. Anyone here who works for a research organisation used to write in grant proposals and get feedback and things like that, but we'd never been in this particular situation before. So we more or less manufactured a, a reason to jump on a plane and go to Canberra and see her facilities and what she was doing. And in that process, it became really obvious to me that a lot of the things she'd talked to us about, which at that stage was probably about eight weeks before that we'd put in this grant proposal, they'd already solved. And so we sat down and I, I said, okay, like, you know, you're over here, we're here, how are we going to bring this together? And in um, her honesty, she said, listen, we'd really like to work for you, but while I said at the meet-up how much money we'd raised, it's actually a lot of, in my words, mouths to feed. There's not a lot left over. And the investors are really putting us under scrutiny with everything we want to spend. So I thought, oh, okay, right, so, you know, let's work to see if there's some common ground and so I said to her I'm really impressed by all the problems that we thought you had that you subsequently solved so you're going at GoTerra speed really fast and I noticed that uh, the director of CSR Agriculture and Food where I come from today the business unit newsletter came out and it was featuring V2 Food and he talked about the going at startup speed in the CSRO side of that so I'm glad he's flogged my idea. And I said, but, you know, one of the things about research organisations, our research is really robust. You know, if we say A is different to B, A is different to B everywhere, or we know where it is and where it isn't and things like that. 
So can we find a problem that you've got that you need to solve fast, that we've got the skills and we can travel at GoTerra speed with, or something that is so critical to your business you need a robust solution? You know you need to invest in something that's going to take a lot longer. We came to the, the former, wrote a sort of a, a two-phase agreement, a first phase to solve some of the here and now problems. That also allowed, I suppose, Gotira to work out whether we actually deliver or not. And we've negotiated the second phase, which will be happening between now and Christmas. So a couple insights there that I wrote down. One, um, like startups are busy, which is something probably everyone knows, and, and everyone's busy, I suppose, but startups especially. The other one is this kind of 80-20 rule, which which comes up a lot, that startups often only need things solved to 80%, and researchers are often incentivized to solve things to 100%. Um, so I'm curious, maybe, Nick, to hear a little bit more of the V2 origin story, but did you have any parallels in terms of pace of the organizations working or researchers wanting to be more kind of 100% correct and you only needed things 80% correct? Any any parallels there? And, and Tegan, you too. So the origin story, we came out of a conversation with um, Jack and Phil and Martin Cole from CSIRO about this space and was there some technology or some knowledge in CSIRO which can be brought to bear on that? And then the decision was taken was on the basis that there was some protein chemistry and some knowledge in, in, in protein chemistry, protein extraction, and some knowledge around meat flavor chemistry, which was sitting in the organization that, yes, they could bring some some uh, expertise to bear. And the decision was to do a startup because it was very clear that the only way we were going to get that stuff out of CSIRO into anything useful was to actually form a company around that. And that was when they asked me to do it. Um, interestingly, the, the, the process of CSIRO writing what they call uh, statements of work it's just so tortuous and, and crazy because the process is there for attracting funds from external funds or from, you know, for long-term research. A lot of work goes into writing a statement of work when actually in startup world, you know broadly what the outcome is and what's useful for you, but you're really not interested in milestones that may be six months away or three months away or even two weeks away. It's just of no interest whatsoever. It's, it's get started, do something useful, and we'll evaluate it as we go. And that's something which it's been a journey. I think we've, we've now on like project number 13 or 14 with CSIRO. We're spending a, a lot of money with CSIRO, and they're getting used to being a little bit looser with the statements of work. And I'm sort of guaranteeing that I'm not going to hold them to a statement of work, which I think personally is ridiculous, but I will hold them to the effort in achieving an outcome, which I think is important for the consumer. And it's just a totally different mindset, and it's a different world for the researchers to work for a startup that's only interested in stuff that's useful for the consumer and not interested in delivering the statement of work in itself. And I've noticed that also in in other organizations, like uh, I did some consulting for MLA, long-term research, and they would sweat this statement of work with all of the milestones and then you'd have project management teams that would hold people's feet to the fire because they didn't achieve a milestone. But no one ever bothered to ask the question, well, was that milestone useful? It was written two years before, and it might have been useful in the eye of somebody two years before. But actually, the world has moved on, and it's no longer useful. And yet the organization is still doing its best to deliver a a useless milestone. Crazy. So what's noticeable now is that everyone's a little bit looser now and of course it helps that it's our money it's venture capital money we're a little bit looser with it speed for us is everything because we're on this wave and we know that if we come up with a fantastic solution in two years time well it's too late you know we have to have fantastic solutions now but i think also i'm noticing that Syro is getting it as well a little bit and they're they're becoming a little bit looser in the um, the statement of work phase of the 
of the research. I just agree with that one and I'd say that so we, we've had a um, collaboration ongoing with ANU for a little while now and from that we've realised that one of the big keys is finding the right researcher or the right researcher group to work with sometimes. We've paired up with the Borovitz group at ANU and with the way that we're working our mission is obviously carbon sequestration, looking at climate adaptation and mitigation for agriculture and their group is hugely aligned in that aspect. They're working with a lot of other technologies that really sit in this space and, and have been working with not necessarily startups but fast um, organisations previously and we've found that a really, really fantastic experience just because they're so driven for the mission as well. Like obviously the science has to be robust. It's something that they take a lot of time looking over, you know, the way that we're working on methodologies and the likes, but it's having that mission that's aligned up front. You're on the same page and you can start to get straight to the work as opposed to sometimes, you know, going through the bureaucracy of, of dealing with research institutions. It's taking the time to find the right person to work with and it makes things an awful an awful lot easier. One of the things that gets talked about a lot in the researcher startup collaborations is IP and that the startup needs freedom to operate and to raise money. They need to show that they own the IP, but the researcher wants to show return to taxpayers or that otherwise it's getting distributed to everyone. How have you guys in these projects navigated that challenge? It's always an issue, and Tyro and historically have been really difficult to deal with when it comes to IP. With us, it's easy. Um, I pay them a lot of money to do research, and I own the IP um, that comes out of it. They have freedom to exploit any IP that comes out of it that's come from their knowledge in areas that are not related to what I'm doing, and uh, lots of freedom to publish and get the kudos and the reputation stuff. So we're, it's actually relaxed things a bit because. It used to be a bun fight. You know, the first six months of any research contract with Syro was was a discussion about IP, and life's too short. You know, you just got to get over it. And with the universities, it was even worse in a, in a way because some universities would forget that their mission was to educate and to to push the boundaries of science. And you would get into crazy discussions around IP. I think it's relaxing. Actually, I think people are realizing what's it what's it about. What are we actually trying to do here? And the, the reality, of course, is a patent has no value. It has no value. Most, of the, most patents have no value whatsoever. We're still obsessed with IP uh, in a world where actually we've just got to be obsessed with speed because actually the prize goes to the ones who, uh, who, are, who are first. So, yeah, I think it's a journey, but I can see already that it's sort of thawing out. And When you're collaborating with another organisation, there's things that are of key importance to you and there's things that are of key importance to them. And it's as you develop that collaboration, work out what's most important to you, what's most important to them, and how can you cater to both. So we have um, a project that's happening over the course of next year, and it's a climate resilient soils network. So we're looking at microbes in the agricultural system from a systems point of view, as well as pinpointing actual strains of organisms that have a particular effect. So when we're working with researchers on that project we're saying well obviously there's that systems piece that is hugely publishable like there's there's so much that we want to share with everybody that's for common good common knowledge looking at that systems piece and how do we actually build carbon within the system but then there's also the piece that we can gain you know as as source question from a commercial point of view in terms of some of those specific isolates and what we actually want to get out of them in terms of IP so it's step back for a moment and say well, what do they want to gain and what do we need to gain and how can we make a project work for both? Yeah, I thought about that long and hard in going into the discussions of GoTerra and I, I think it was very clear in my mind that they own the IP 
and well as an organisation we have a range of positions on IP depending on how much of the work is funded by CSRO. If we're contributing funds to it we generally think we should have a share of the IP. On the other hand if people are paying a lot of money as you know to quote what you said then we can be more relaxed. So it's a big organisation, people are individuals as you say you've got to get the right people but yeah IP is something that can always be negotiated. I want to ask all of you if in this journey there's anything in looking back that you would do differently in terms of collaboration or or more broadly but things that you've said oh we kind of botched that one up and wish we had done that differently. I suppose the uh, opposite story to our experience with GoTerra specifically has been sitting down with somebody, a startup, talking with them, getting all excited, actually going through writing a lean business canvas and you know meeting them and things like that and it the end of the day, they wanted to sell us stuff. They had a, a data collection system. You know, when you scraped away, they thought the data that they were collecting from the farmers they were working with would be super valuable to an organisation like ours or others. And it was, you know, all just a fig leaf for, can I flog you my product? But, and I'm sure, you know, anyone on the VC side or the startup side can tell an opposite story where, you know, the researchers coming with a hammer saying, you know, can I turn your problem into a nail sort of thing. So it's that complete mismatch and the time it takes to uncover that. Be my lesson. Looking at looking at the Salsa Quest journey, and it's probably not a mistake, but it could be something um, to reflect on. It was a period of probably six years that Salsa Quest was operating solely as a not-for-profit and was driven off the back of a lot of goodwill. Certainly a lot of crowdfunding happened during that time. You know, we were were driven by farmers for farmers was the mantra that we were using and obviously trying to be very true to that statement. But it certainly was something that was an uphill battle and we had moments where there were organisations coming to us and saying, we want to buy your science, we want to, you know have a piece of what of what you've got and we're very idealistic about it saying no this is an organization that's by farmers for farmers we're going to to stay true to that um, and it took us a long time to work out the model that was still true to that still true to the mission but enabled us to really get on with the research in a big way and that was just such a long period of time and it's probably something that if you're thinking about setting up an alternative model do a lot of research and look around and see what else there is out there, what what really works and, and what can actually align to that mission to save probably a lot of a lot of hours of crowdfunding that's not necessarily needed in some cases. With with V2 it's it's pretty difficult actually because things have gone so fast and, and we've been lucky in, in many ways, so it's it's difficult to say what we did. I mean we've made heaps of mistakes but we've recovered from them days after making the mistakes. Uh, so we've never had a fatal mistake so that's pretty lucky uh, I wish I'd met you earlier that would have been uh, good because that would save me there's me thinking about how are we going to grow legumes in a sustainable way that's that's carbon positive you know, the reason why plant-based meat is important is because we want to reduce our carbon footprint and ultimately we have to suck carbon out of the atmosphere it's already known obviously that we're we're at a tipping point we're maybe even past the tipping point we've got to start doing something drastic here and eating plant-based meat is is good than uh, meat or reducing your meat meat consumption but the next question is going to be all well, how sustainable were those plants and was it you know and there's a there's a huge difference obviously uh, depending on how you look after your soils about whether a, 
whether or not you're sequestering carbon or, or actually depleting your soils. So I'm glad we met because that ultimately, for the longevity of our brand, we have to be part of a sustainable Australian ecosystem. So live up to the clean green image that we have abroad and we actually make it true because there's a gap potentially between our image and, and what's actually happening from a climate change perspective in Australia. So uh, thanks, for because that's great. I mean, we've got, we're going to collaborate now. Hopefully, Tegan and Nick do find some ways to collaborate. That's really what the meetup is about, people meeting each other and finding ways to work together. The last question for me for the panel was about farmers. For ag tech and food tech, obviously farmers are a key part of the whole equation, and we often talk about the researcher startup collaborations, but probably talk less about how some of these ag tech and food tech businesses work with and how the researchers work with startups. So there's kind of a few angles here. One is, you know, CSIRO on just closed, and that was a big program to help researchers think more about their customers. You mentioned before that, Nick, through your work, you got customer feedback getting passed back to the researchers and and helping them think more customer-centric. So I don't know if you guys have any comments on collaboration with farmers and how that is or isn't different or challenging in terms of where, where you guys sit. We do a lot of work with farmers. The particular industry that I work most in, I mean, one of the things we do have is really deep networks into that farmer community and not only a reasonably good sense of how they think and what their priorities are and how they operate their business, uh, but also those links to say, oh, you know, you want to talk to someone about such and such, you can do that. And we do that regularly. So, you know, when we're developing decision support systems, apps and things like that, have UXD people coming in, working with farmers and getting the, the right people. This is all people stuff, isn't it? You meet an SME, people you don't know, you get to know them, you work out, can you communicate or not? Farmers, likewise, and then it becomes a, a triangle, how you can do with that. So a lot of us in agriculture are, are pretty farm-centric and have pretty good connections into that and sort of have a understanding of the way farm works. That said, it's really interesting when you get challenged by someone from outside that says, oh, do you know whether it's the male or the female in the household who's driving the technology development on the farm or something? Oh, I've never asked that question. So there's always more more to learn. I couldn't stress that one, um, that sentiment enough either. So we talk a lot about farmers and I would say the one thing that we have to be really conscious of in the ag tech space is that we use the word farmer, but it is not a homogenous group of people you know you have a huge scope of people who are farming with different values you have a huge scope of people who are farming with different interests in terms of are they interested in soil health is it precision ag that you know they're focused on people who have different appetites for risk it's not just engaging I'd say with what you perceive typically as a farmer it's making sure that you're engaging with the whole spectrum of growers and I guess Soil Sequest our story is quite farmer centric but can't stress the importance of making sure that the problem that you're addressing is actually a problem for farmers and and dig deep and make sure that that is the problem challenge your assumptions and make sure it is the problem that you're actually addressing and constantly have that feedback loop with the growers that you're working to address that issue for. I'm not really qualified, to be honest. I'm not that close to the farms. I mean, when I was at at PepsiCo, I know that that a lot of the business model for Frito-Lay 
globally is, is really connected to the, the, their ability to connect with farmers and encourage farmers to grow better potatoes, which results in better potato chips. And there's a very direct feedback loop to make sure that that is a reinforcing system. And it's a long-term system that covers generations, you know, generations of farmers learning how to do the right thing, variety development, soil management, all sorts of things results in a, in a sort of a, a, an ecosystem which is profitable for everybody. The farmer gets security. And it was funny because we were just talking about that is, is that because farming is the most risky occupation, it's risks that, and I, I say I know, I'm coming from outside, but I know that the risks associated are risks that we would never normally take, but farmers take these every day or every year when they decide to sow. And I wonder what is a, an ecosystem which is more resilient and less risky that isn't subject to the global markets where something happens in Ukraine and suddenly the the bottom falls out of the potato market or something and the farmer thought they were going to make some money and now they make nothing, not through any fault of their own. What is that system that we could create around a sort of a sustainable ecosystem in Australia which combines the sustainability and the carbon sequestration and all the things that we know that is part of the agricultural system with resilience but we don't just throw it away because something happened somewhere else in the world. And why is it that we have this sort of farm gate mentality? I don't know the, the, the solution, but I've been observing it from the outside and thinking this is not a recipe for a resilient system and it's not going to be helpful for when we actually try and have a system that sequesters carbon and feeds the world in a, in a, in a much more resilient way. So I, I don't know the, the answer, but I suspect that, you know, maybe almost draw a, not, not draw a boundary around us, but somehow make us more resilient to, to what happens elsewhere in the world. Because you can't build a, a resilient system if your input costs or your output costs just double or, or halve from one year to the next. You can't build a business that way. And I don't think you can build a resilient uh, system that way. I could ask these guys questions for literally two more hours, but there are questions from you guys, I'm sure, and, and beers to be drunk and Friday nights to be had elsewhere. So I will wrap up my questions there, and Nick has to go sing at the Opera House. Um, otherwise, he'll have to sing for us, and, and that will be better for us, but worse for him. So from a small startup perspective, Lewis and Bioscout, in collaboration, it's really tricky in Australia. We've got like however many RDCs, we've got all the state departments, and you have to keep trying with each one and have different communications, protocols, and... If one person leaves, you lose all your progress. Do you see any way in which we can kind of streamline the process of like this completely segmented research and development process? I think at the moment that's the question on everyone's lips. The government has acknowledged that that is definitely an issue going forward. There's at the moment a review looking into exactly that. How does the RDA system collaborate? better. There's some key areas where they're uniform across the RDC systems. There's things like water, there's things like climate, there's things like soils. I definitely don't have the answer, but I would say that it's something that you should definitely speak out about. Like if, if you're having those issues and if you're seeing those issues, definitely have those conversations with the RDCs themselves because there's some, some really interesting things that's happening in the RDC space at the moment and they're really open to those conversations. I'd flip that round and say, from my point of view, and I know this is, my colleagues think of this as well, you're dealing with a startup and bang, they pivot, and bang, they pivot. Okay, so the conversation can completely change. Or you're dealing with a large company and the person, the influential person you've been um, dealing with has left or they've moved on and they've done something else. I'm not sure that this isn't actually anything other than human nature and organisational culture, big, small, government, non-government, private sort of thing. 
and I suppose that's why humans are so good at making networks and relationships to you know, surf that space rather than having a, a sort of an institutional approach to it, which is, oh, well, there is this prime ministerially appointed single point of contact for such and such science in the country. Is that going to work? don't think so. It doesn't work in our organisation, let alone with multiple ones. But, yeah, so from our side, we, we see that turbulence as well. Uh, Richard Heath, Australian Farm Institute. The structural changes to have better collaboration are happening. I can say that as an RDC director, but you can do all the structural change in the world and it has no effect if you don't have the cultural piece right. And I think that I'm just particularly interested in, in Nick's comments on this, given your global experience about collaboration culture around the world and how we sit in Australia if we just just culturally understanding of what collaboration is about and what we need to do to get better at doing that so we actually have the structural changes have effect. I did a lot of research in Holland. I, I was 11 years in Holland doing as R&D director for Mars in Europe. And Holland has a really, really good innovation ecosystem um, in agriculture. If we want to aspire to something, it's Holland that does it. And I'm, I was trying to unpick, why are they so good now? Obviously, Holland is a trading country and it, it has a really huge you know, trading network you know, into Europe, etc. And maybe it's something about the Dutch character and they, they do trade. They, they'll talk to anybody. They'll always negotiate. They'll, you know, it's all about networks. They're all multilingual. They will do what they need to do to, to make the networks, to make the trade. There's a few other things that, that are interesting. And one of the things I always fought for, and I'm obviously useless as a, as a government lobbyist, was things like the R&D tax. When I was in multinationals, it was a big frustration. There was me. I was R&D director of a big multinational. Everyone assumed I had heaps of money. To, to spend and that the R&D tax would come to me to you know, invest in you know, universities and CSIRO and the reality of course is R&D tax goes to Treasury which goes back to head office and, and the R&D director is going well hang on a minute I've just earned sort of two million dollars uh, where is it and well it's gone so it was understanding that that's also a system how do we get the, the, the money that government does put into innovation gets it in the hand of, of players who can actually make the ecosystem better. I know we focus on small business, and small business is really good. I'm a small businessman now. But when I was in a, a big business, big businesses can really get momentum behind big projects because they do have that scale. In Australia, there, are no, there is no more R&D left in food organisations in Australia. Everything has gone abroad now. The reason is, is actually because none of the big businesses have got any real money or cash to work with universities or with the CSIRO simply because a very simple mechanism, the R&D tax doesn't give the money back to the companies, it gives it back to Treasury. So it's a frustration. Um, I've lobbied for a long time, it's just never, never worked. I had this chat today with a gentleman I just met. So he is a grew up on a farm in South Australia. They own properties in the Northern Territory, so pretty kind of ag background. Ended up going over to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, for an MBA recently, and got involved in the startup scene in Silicon Valley. Founded a biotech startup that was acquired, and then has gotten really excited about bringing some of the technologies and lessons back to agriculture in Australia. So he was talking to me about kind of what's happening here and how to get involved. And he's like, "Oh, I have a few ideas for a startup," you know working on a couple of things and I immediately thought he's not going to tell me the ideas because I'm so used to in Australia people keeping ideas really close to their chest and he goes yeah so my first one is this and my second one's this and my third one's this and he just told them all to me and I was like um let me just call you out on this because 
that's amazing that you told me these ideas. Here's 17 people I can connect you to that are interested in these spaces, and I'm more than happy to make all of these introductions. And he was like, that's amazing. I'll send you an email right now. And then we were both reflecting on the fact that that's not how things usually work in Australia, and that it wasn't until he went to UC Berkeley and had so many people just open doors and make connections and share lessons that he learned that that's how business can get done so much more effectively. And so it's not to bash Australia, because obviously there are many Australians who are super collaborative and open with what they do, but it is a kind of cultural difference that I've really noticed gets challenged in, in the U.S. for sure. Andrew Kirk, product marketer in technology for some time, interested in ag. Just on collaboration, I'm interested in, in you reflecting on your collaborations. We've heard about troubles of things going awry in a collaboration, some being successful. When you reflect on them, what signs give you an indication that it's going well? And what signs give you an indication that it's not going so well? It's like any other human relationship. Are you being open? Do you think the other person's being open? Can you identify areas of common interest? Are you prepared to be honest and say, actually, no, this isn't an area of interest to me. Thanks, but no thanks, and, and walk away, rather than you know, try and pretend something different for that. And it's no different for us collaborating in some respects. Well, you know, as I talked before about getting to learn about the trials and tribulations of being in a startup, but we do most of our research in collaboration with other organisations. It could be Pharma Group, it could be another R&D organisation. What are the value systems? What are the drivers of behaviour? What are the reward systems in that? And can you get around that stuff and find them? And at the end of the day, a lot of it is, do you like that person? Do you have someone on the other side who you feel warm about and who feels warm about you? And you're just going to stick through thick and thin. I was talking to a colleague recently who is saying about this person in this AgTech SME, they've just been so good at sticking with us. And they ring up occasionally and say, oh, what's happening? Is it all good? It's been quite... And so my colleague says, yeah, no, it, it's fine. It's just taken a while to grind through the wheels. And then they talk about football for half an hour. So, yeah, I, I don't know it's particularly magical to any other human interactions. I, I love your story, and it's true. Um, we've just got to have lots of conversations. I mean, we just hold on to stuff. We should just talk about what we're dreaming, what we're hoping, and that means that serendipity will happen. And I've been reasonably visible. It means that there's lots of serendipity because lots of people say, hey, you, you said something about this, so I know something about that. And some of it doesn't come to anything. And also force-fitting collaboration where it really isn't there, where you really aren't aligned, there isn't value for both. That's fine too. You had a great conversation, didn't go anywhere, great. You have another conversation. And just how we get those behaviours and also how we have those forums, so the work that you do, bringing lots of people together. There are certain individuals um, who are master networkers who just love bringing people together. Those people are gold, and obviously Sarah's one of them, and there's there's others who are just, they bring people together. Their life's mission is to bring people together, to have interesting conversations. And out of some of those conversations, there'll be a little spark and that could be really valuable, and that's um, you know, and that's the the luck that you need to get things going. And uh, and there's been a couple already tonight, so that's great. That's a perfect way to end. So I wanted you guys to just like 30 seconds. If there's something you're looking for, a collaboration or connection that you want that the audience can maybe help with or someone they know, anything that's on your wish list or, as Nick said, your hopes and dreams list, the audience um, here tonight or listening to the podcast can maybe help with. I- think as a parting gesture rather than saying oh you know I want to speak to you by a sensor guys because I actually do as an organization there's lots of different ways to interact with us there's almost as many ways as there are people in the organization so don't be afraid to 
pick up the phone and you know you say Nick you know you've got the people on natural connectors and if you find someone it might lead you to someone to someone to someone so yeah we're always interested in how to get our work on the ground and make agriculture and other facets of society better. We are in the process of growing. Um, we're seeking um, researchers, we're seeking um, people with specialist skills in the areas of, of soil carbon, microbiology, anything and everything that relates to our project at the moment. So if you think you know of anyone or if you think you are that someone, reach out and have a chat. Even if it's not to come on board, it's to, it's to share some learnings. I'm at Tegan, so that's, um, that's my uh, uh, win out of the season. You don't need anyone else. Don't need anyone else, no. It's difficult. I mean, what, what we're trying to do is, is, you know, we want to build a brand in Australia. We want to build sustainability at the same time as, as, as building all the technology. It's, everything is being done in parallel. So, you know, and I'm using and I'm collaborating with CSRO. Luckily with, with CSRO, there are connectors within CSRO and a few of them actually know what some of the people in CSRO do. There's, there's, even within CSRO, there's very few people who know what, the, what there is there that you can grab hold of. So that, that's always a, a challenge. Um, so no, I'm, uh, there's nothing, I, I don't say there's nothing I need. There's everything, I need everything. Um, and nothing so uh, and I am rec- I mean and also I'm recruiting and it's interesting the start of and this is maybe something I should I should share because I never knew this is because I've got no time to do recruiting it's amazing the team I've got is kind of landed on my lap from people who've actually approached me and were brave enough to say hey Nick I'm passionate about this I've got these and these skills and then suddenly they're in my team because I haven't got time to go and, and do proper recruitment process so so if you have skills don't be shy go and approach if there's somebody who's doing something that's really interesting just go and approach them and uh, who knows you might end up uh, as, as employee number number 12 or something please join me in thanking the guests Thank you for joining us on another episode of AgTech So What. You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.